0: I'm home. This is the Confessions of an Arcade Addict Podcast, an introspective look into video gaming from the classic era until today. Now here is your host, Brian. Hey folks, what's going on out there? Brian here, and this is episode six of the Confessions of an Arcade Addict Podcast. Um, I just checked emails; still nothing. Uh, As I'm going to say, until I start getting some feedback, aside from one person on a message board telling me everything that I did wrong with the show, some of it was actually valid and I corrected it. If you want to get a hold of me and you want to discuss anything that I've talked about so far, any critiques, any opinions about the show... Try to be constructive and polite, please. You can reach me at arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com Also, I am... The show has a rather strong, shall we say, uh, social media presence. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. Uh, let's see. On Facebook, you want to... Search Confessions of an Arcade Addict on Twitter. It's at addict underscore B. On Instagram, ArcadeAddictBrian. And on Tumblr, it is www.tumblr.com slash blog slash Confessions of an Arcade Addict. All one word. So there are various ways to get a hold of the show. And you can also drop a voicemail if you would like. The number is 734-743-2433. Okay, so without any further ado, we have a lot to get into. So let's start it off with Arcade Rundown. Good morning, Mr. Phelps. Your mission, Jim, should you decide to accept it, is to make Stefan believe Thompson's information. As always, should you or any of your I.M. force be caught or killed, the Secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions. This state will self-destruct in five seconds. Good luck, Jim. Arcade Rundown. Now, when I was a kid, I'd say probably 11 years old, maybe even a little younger, maybe even 10, um... Being in elementary school, as I was, you know, by the time late spring rolled around going into early summer, you know, you are always looking forward to the end of school because that meant once summer began, there is no school. You can go come and go as you please, do whatever you like. And some things would happen during the summer that were really cool. Uh, one of these things was the James E. Straits shows, or as we called it in my hometown of Bridgeport, the Midway. Uh, it was a traveling circus that came to town on a rather long, uh, train, and they would basically, their train would be, uh... It would be more or less parked on a track, uh, just north of downtown along Housatonic Avenue, if I remember my streets correctly, and they would gather their, they gather all of their, uh, things and, you know, animals, tents, equipment, what have you, and they would move it all down to Seaside Park, um... And there was a very large open area where they would set their, you know, basically set everything up. Um, it was a full circus animals, rides, amusements, attractions, games of chance, games of skill, and a pretty damn big arcade tent. <laughs> that was the major attraction for me, aside from the bumper cars. I loved. Just going on the flying bobs, also, and spaceship one or Starship One, I think it was starship one that was a ride that basically looked like on the outside it was a uh ar looked like basically a rocket ship, and it uh when you got onto that ride, basically you got into it and you sat down in the seat and you i think you had seat belts. And you had to because what would happen is uh, the rocket ship was on a hydraulic platform. And basically it would would start at horizontal and then it would start raising up. And as it did, it would uh, rotate from side to side probably about 45 degrees to either side. And while this is going on, a movie is playing at the front of the of the ship, so the what would be going on in the movie would be uh, synchronous with the raising and lowering of the ship and the rotating from side to side. I mean, it was a really really cool uh, effect. I mean, it was a battle beyond the stars ish. And for those who don't know, look that up on IMDb. It's one of the cheesiest sci-fi movies of all time, but in my opinion, one of the best. Um, I think that came out in 78. And it had an all-star cast, and they were all just cheesing up their roles to the maximum. It was freaking awesome. Um, but yeah, so this that was one of my favorite rides. And the Flying Bobs and the Himalaya, and the bumper cars. So I remember that was like the major uh, indication that summer was here. Because everyone would be going down there. Uh, you know, it was a wonderful thing. I mean, every time I walked to the Midway when I was a kid, whether I was by myself or with family, um, the place was packed. And, you know, they would be, they would basically stay in Bridgeport until 4th of July. And that was the other major event, was the 4th of July fireworks at Seaside Park. And that would herald the end of the Midway stay. I think they would stay in Bridgeport for like two weeks, if I'm not mistaken. So they would start like third week in June and they would stay all the way until July 4th, and then they would pack up and move on to the next city. So that was like a staple, a summertime staple in Bridgeport. Everybody went down there. Um, But I remember discovering they had an arcade tent. I think the first time I ever saw it, I think the year was 1979. Um, That was... Yeah, that was just before everything started really blowing up. Space Invaders was ruling the roost. Asteroids had just come out. And those two games were doing a fairly brisk business. Galaxian also. And so the Midway and Bridgeport would come every summer. And that was the major thing for me. all, All the way up until, God, I think the last time the Midway came to Bridgeport, I think was 85 or maybe 86, but they stopped coming after someone was shot to death. Uh, Apparently there was a dispute, a fight, and someone decided to take it to the next level and killed someone else. And that's when the Midway stopped coming to town, which was unfortunate. It was sad. But when it did, through all those years... I mean, I remember going down to the midway. My aunt would always take me and my brother and also my uh my cousin who was oh goodness, how old was she? She was like oh goodness, she was like three years old at the time or something like that. I think I was like twelve. Um so, you know, we'd all pile in her car and she'd take us down there and she would buy us tickets to go on the rides. You know, I'd ask for like $3 to you know, go in the arcade because that's where I would be. You know, as soon as we got the tickets to go on the rides, I would, you know, do the bumper cars, do the Starship One, do either the Himalayas or the Flying Bobs, depending on what I was feeling like. But as soon as I was done with those, I made a beat straight to that arcade tent. And they had everything. Um... You know, no matter what year it was, they had the games of the time. Um, if 79, they had Galaxian machines, they had Asteroids machines, Space Invaders, of course, and, you know, all the games that came out that were more or less Space Invaders clones. Um, 1980, I mean, I talked about it in a previous episode when I, I talked about Defender. They had, at the very least, four Defender machines, at the very least four. I want to say it was five, but I know it was at least four. Um, You know, they had Pac-Man machines. They had, I think they had Miss Pac-Man machines too when that came out. And we'll be talking about that later on in this episode. But it was one of those things that it heralded summer. It was almost like summer wasn't summer until you went down to the Midway a few times and then you went on the 4th of July and you saw and you saw the fireworks you know out over Long Island Sound you know it was like as soon as that happened you know all of a sudden you know it was true freedom until the end of August beginning of September when school started uh ramping back up but i mean i love that place I have very fond memories of that place, including... <laughs> yeah, I might as well tell the story. You know, statute of limitations and all that. One time I went down to the Midway by myself. Um, I was hanging around downtown until probably about 6 or 7 o'clock, and then I headed down to the Midway. And back in the day uh the south side of bridgeport was a pretty dangerous place um whether you went down um uh whether you went down main street or madison avenue or park avenue no matter which way you went um you know the you know there were some inherent dangers that you undertook going down there and you you acknowledge them, and you did your best to look out for you and yours, and that's the best you did. I mean, I was pretty lucky, because I would roam around a lot when I was a kid, as you're gonna find out as this podcast progresses, <laughs> as I feel more comfortable telling the stories. But anyway, so yeah, I was hanging around at the uh, Lafayette Plaza, uh, for the most part, and then after it got late enough, I'd walked on down to uh, Seaside Park. Uh, When I got down there and got in the Midway, um, I didn't have very much money. I think I had enough to take the bus home. And... Or no, I have... No, actually, I take that back. I think I had like $5 or something like that, plus bus fare to get home. And what ended up happening was that I lost complete track of time. And... I missed the last bus to go home. And at this point, I want to say the year was 1982. I think it was either 81 or 82. I can't remember which year it was. But basically, now I'm in a pickle. I don't have enough for a cab. I really don't want to call home and go through the mortification and the... Depending on, you know, my uncle's or aunt's mood, you know, I didn't want to get yelled at. I mean, I know I messed up and I didn't really want to hear about how badly I messed up or how I disturbed their evening. So I was like, at this point, I had been walking around literally all day and I wasn't looking forward to the trek home because it was a very, very long walk. Um, As a matter of fact, I'm going to pause it here because I want to know just exactly how long the walk is from Seaside Park to my house. So I'll be right back. Okay, I'm back. And with the help of Google Maps, I was able to find out that it's four and a half miles from Seaside Park to my house. And that's all uphill. All of it. You know, um, it's fairly flat going through downtown. Then once you get past uh, Capitol Avenue, uh, it starts going uphill rather sharply past St. Vincent's Medical Center until you reach basically the crest, which is at uh, Beachmont Avenue, which takes me all the way over to where I lived. So... Being an 11 year old, and my feet and legs are already hurting, and I'm trying to figure out exactly how to get home. (laughs) So, what do I do? I started looking for ways to get home. I wasn't, I never did, I didn't see anyone I knew, and I was just trying to figure it out. And so, I'm walking around behind all the tents, which is more or less where the, the carnies are parked or are there. They live, they have their trailers and everything else behind the various tents and attractions. And I was wandering around behind there and I found a golf cart and me in my mind, I didn't know that back then it was four and a half miles to get home. I knew it was a long way, but I didn't think it was that far. So what did I do? I took it. (laughs) Yeah. And I start driving that cart all the way. I I got all the way close to Main Street before a policeman saw me and pulled me over. And, you know, they asked me questions. And of course I'm not going to tell them the truth. Of course not. So I basically start this story about uh, I was borrowing it to get home, and one of the uh, one of the people who worked at the midway, his name was Joe, said it was okay if I did it as long as I, you know, gassed up and brought it back the next day or some story like that. And the cops didn't buy it for a minute, but you know they saw that I'm like an 11 year old kid who's way far away from home, once they found out where I lived, and I told them, um, basically, they took pity on me, and they not only took me home, but they took me to... They took me to uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken in my neighborhood, and you know, bought me something to eat uh, before they took me home. And... That in itself, you know, with especially with the way things are right now, with uh, you know, with uh, you know, the things with police and people of color and things like that, that in itself was pretty, you know, just pretty uh, amazing, at least in my view, it was. You know, I'm thinking, you know, I'm in all kinds of trouble and. You know, they take me home and, you know, they uh, talk to my grandparents who I'm living with at the time while my mother is out working. And, you know, I'm like, I'm sitting there praying I'm not in trouble because if I'm in trouble, I am in major, <laughs> major trouble with my grandparents. And I you didn't mess around with my grandfather, <laughs> not more than once anyway. So um so yeah, they just basically, you know, they you know, they talked it out and you know, they didn't do anything. They basically before they took me home, they took the the cart back and you know, then they just kinda took me and took me to get something to eat, then they took me home. And I just remember that being, <laughs> you know, one of those things where I had some explaining to do to my grandparents and whatnot who knew that, you know, just, just in general principle, that what, uh, that, um, what I was telling them wasn't, what I told the cops wasn't the truth. They knew, they knew. I wasn't the best liar in the world, (laughs) but yeah. So, I mean, though, it's those kinds of things. I mean, another story is, um, One time I go down there, same kind of thing. I'm hanging around downtown and I go down to the Midway and it's getting late again. But this time I'm older. I think I'm like, oh goodness, what is this? I'd say this is what, 1983? It's either 82 or 83, somewhere in there. Um, And basically I'm down there all the way to closing and I'm trying to figure out my options to get home. I mean, the only option I had was to walk to downtown by the bus station and see if I could get, home, get to the bus station in time to catch either the number 6 or the number 12 bus home, like one of the last ones. That bus route always ran late, like well past 11 o'clock. But, yeah, so I was going to have to hoof it up there. But as I'm trying to figure stuff out, you know, I hear somebody call my name, and I turn around, and... It's a bunch of the dudes that I grew up with in my neighborhood. And they're like, what you doing down here? I said, yeah, I was just hanging out, you know, doing my thing. And, you know, you know, I'm want to get I'm trying to get home now because, you know, now I think about it, it's like close to midnight. So they're like, well, come on with us. We'll all walk home. I mean, it was like, oh, God, I'm trying to think it was like at least eight of us, maybe as many as twelve. And, you know, so we all are just walking up Main Street, and we're having a good old time. <laughs> you know, we made a couple of side trips. Um, if I remember correctly, one of my friends wanted to go to, uh, we went to uh, Pekwonic, uh Apartments, which was this high-rise apartment uh, just north of Seaside Park, and... It was a really high rise. I think it's at least 20 floors or something like that. You could see that building from uh, I-95 as you drew, drove through downtown Bridgeport. And, you know, we went there for a little while. Then we all just hoofed it. You know, we all basically hoofed it up uh, Main Street and Housatonic Avenue. And we went the back way. You know, we went the way that, you know, we went basically went the way uh, home that, you, you know, in reverse, if you're going to Spanky's, you know, going up Lindley Street, then cutting behind Reed School, and going up, uh, Green, or excuse me, uh, yeah, Greenwood Street, yeah, that's the name of it, I'm looking at Google Maps of my hometown right now, which is helping out with my memory, so, yeah, basically, the area that is now, is very, uh, Zavira, Zavira Park, uh, that wasn't a park back then, it was just, uh, it was just woods, you know, like I said when I was talking about Spankies, but yeah, we would just go, we basically did that, I mean, we didn't get home until like four in the morning, you know, and, you know, it was one of those things that I, one of those memories that I cherish, you know, because, you know, we're all just walking up the street, hanging out, you know, just, you know, palling around, you know, cutting up while we're, you know, walking, which kind of just takes our mind off of the distance. Like I said, it's four and a half miles uphill. (laughs) So, um, yeah, that was one of my, one of my other memories of the Midway. I mean, I remember multiple years with the exception of one. I can't remember which year it was. I think it was 82 or is like either 81 or 82 when, um, we couldn't go see the fireworks because it was raining that day, which sucked. Because we all wanted to go down there and watch the fireworks. That was like one of the big things. So, so yeah, I mean, those are my memories of the James E. Strait shows. They're still in existence today. I looked it up. Um, they still basically, you know, go from town to town on, you know, a rail line. if you can, I think it's like if... The uh, locale is like within like four miles or five miles within a rail within a working rail line. They'll go to your town if you want them to. As a matter of fact, you know what? I'm gonna look it up because they deserve a little bit of a plug and a little bit of attention. So I'll be right back. Okay, I'm back. Uh, Reading from Wikipedia, the James E. Straight shows is a family-operated traveling carnival midway company based in Orlando, Florida. It provides amusement rides, games, and concessions for local, county, and state fairs throughout the United States. Straight Shows is the only midway company in the country that transports their personnel and equipment by train during its annual seven-month season. The train currently comprises of 61 rail cars and 34 trucks. Yeah, that's about right. I mean, I remember walking home from downtown one time and... Um like i said they ha- there was a a inactive rail line going up Housatonic avenue, and that's where they would park the train you know um it was off you know way off the main rail line, so that's where they would be and then they would transport all their stuff down to um down to seaside park, like I said, so yeah, they have over 400 employees, you can go to uh, uh, www.straightscarnivalcompany.com and you can actually, you know, see about, you know, reserving, you know, the Midway to come to your town. You know, it was fun. And I remember it's one of the best things of my, one of the best memories of my childhood right there. So yeah, that's the uh, Midway, James E. Straight shows. If you have any memories of this or anything connected to it that you know i spoke about get a hold of me at arcadeaddictbryan.com okay so we are done with that so let's move on to story time Bodies body is a given life in the midst of nothingness existing where there is nothing The meaning of the phrase "form is emptiness" that all things are provided for by nothingness is the meaning of the phrase "emptiness is form." One should not think that these are two separate things. Okay, story time. Christmas, nineteen eighty-one. Um, now to be fair, you know, to my family and to my mother. You know, especially my mother who, you know, when it came time for Christmas, she usually got me the things I wanted, you know, along with a lot of the things that I needed, but I didn't know that I needed, like clothes and things like that. You know, all the boring stuff to a growing boy, you know, but we didn't grow up, well, I grew up and we did not have a lot of money, not even close, you know, some years we did okay, some years we were, you know, poor and, you know, some years, we, most years, we were in the middle. Um, I remember, now, by this time, Christmas 81, my arcade video game addiction is in full swing. There's no other way to say it. You know, I am going to arcades. I mean, by this time, I'm, I just turned 13 years old. Um, you know, I'm going to the arcades as much as possible. Um, I'm, you know, there, um, I don't think I had discovered Spanky's yet, not yet, it was, I think it was a little bit later, sometime in early 82, I think. Um, you know, so I'm going to the mall, I'm going to Bolarama, I'm going to, you know, um, I'm going to the News Corner, I'm going to Lafayette Plaza Arcade when I can, you know, I am just... Out and about all the time, as my mother would say, either walking all over or riding my bike all over creation, (laughs) which is another story which I'll get into, but uh, that's another story for story time in a future episode. But this one, Um, by this time, the Atari 2600 had been out for, what, four years, and the price was starting to come down. I mean, the uh, Intellivision had, has been out for, I want to say, three years? I think the Intellivision came out in 78. As a matter of fact, I'm going to look that up while, while I'm talking. Um, as a matter of fact, let me pause it because, you know, it'll have the keys going. I don't want that. I'll be right back. Okay, I'm back. I was mistaken. The Intellivision came out in 1979. I mean... Uh, they started developing of the console in 77, you know, as a direct competitor to the 2600, which already had been out for a little while and they had a stranglehold on the market in 77 and going into 78, but yeah, the Intellivision came out in 79. So by this time, 1981, um... You know, the Intellivision, of course, had better games, but it was a much more expensive system. There's no other way to say it. There's just no other way to say it at all. Um, the Intellivision, when it first came out in 79, I want to say... Oh, God, I think it was like 400 bucks. Is At the very least, 300. Just like the 2600 was when it came out in 77. But... um The thing was, is that by this time, the 2600 got some really important licenses. Like, they got Space Invaders in 81. Uh, Of course, they were licensing and releasing their own games like Asteroids and Missile Command and things like that. Those were very important games. Um, So... I want to say, I'd say probably by late summer, going into early fall, start in school, starting, I was putting the bug in my mother's ear that I would, can I have an Atari 2600 for Christmas? And I was at it and at it and at it and at it with her until she finally, one day she relented. I was doing well enough in school, although I would say probably just barely, um, And, uh, she, and she finally relented, you know, how I would beg and plead with her. And she finally gave in and she bought me for Christmas a Sears telegames, which was the Sears version of the 2600. Um, it's more or less the same, uh, unit as the 2600, except where the, uh, the control panel was black on uh, twenty six hundred it was like this whitish silver on the telegames, and some of the games they had were named differently than uh the atari twenty six hundred games. They even had their games licensed for ill you know, by Atari to sell under their name, which I thought was really interesting but so my mother she bought me that and she got me a black and white tv set <laughs> oh god i remember that thing we had to i remember that thing lasted me a good <clears throat> three years or so before it, it, it when you turned it when you turn that tv on you know once I'd, I'd had it for a while it would emit this sound that would go straight through my head it would give me migraines it was to the point where I was banging on the side of it to get the sound to stop. And usually it would work. Um, And, but yeah, with the 2600 or excuse me, with this telegames, it, she, the game, the game system itself came with air sea battle, which was okay. It wasn't combat, which came with the 2600 wasn't combat, but okay, I can, I can certainly deal with it. And she got Space Invaders, which was huge. You know, uh, God, I'm trying to remember how much that game cost when it came out. It was upwards of 30 bucks, Because that was like the major... Um, the As I don't want to say it, but it's the only, only thing I can think of. It was the killer app at the time. Because that was like one of the first major league games that Atari didn't make that they got licensing for and while it wasn't exactly like the arcade space invaders it was close enough and it was good enough that yeah i mean i've had i have memories of playing space invaders well over that christmas vacation with my two younger cousins we played that game constantly all of the time just playing and playing and playing um Playing it well when, when my brother came back from the Marine Corps, I mean, you know, he he and I would have, you know, have our battles. Um, I remember my stepfather's son Craig. I remember uh, I used to go over his house every so often, and we would have we'd have it out. We'd play Space Invaders. We'd play Missile Command. And I mean, I loved that thing, and you know. I mean, through the years from when I got it in 81 all the way until I gave it away, I want to say, what year was that? Oh, when I gave it away, I was still living in at my, at uh, the house I was born and raised in. So I want to say that was, what, 88, probably 88 when I gave it away. And the funny part is that I shouldn't have given it away. Um... Not so much that it was a collector's item, but it's just so much of a part of my video gaming history. That was the first gaming system that I owned that I didn't have to go over somebody's house and beg to play it. I mean, it, you know, it was that important, but as I got older, it became less important. Um, but, you know, I just have all these memories of, you know, playing... You know, playing these games until my wrist started to hurt. And then, you know, as I'll talk about in uh, Home Systems, because we're going to go right into it from here. Um, you know, all the cartridges I bought, you know, at a list price. And then when the crash happened in 83, you know... Uh, when all the prices for the atari cartridges started dropping through the th- through the floor you know where you could get like a shrink wrapped never opened missile command for a dollar at kB toys I remember that you know it was it's something i i wish to this day I regret giving it away, even though it was you know i had noble intentions um the uh Uh, One of the kids I grew up with, his name is Andre. Um, He lived in a house with um, his aunts, uncles, uh, and cousins. You know, quite a few. And there were at least, I want to say, oh goodness, I'd say probably at least seven people living at that house at any given time. And that house was no bigger than my house. Um, So uh, his cousin, his younger cousin, Curtis... Um, you know, he was talking about, you know, he's talking about how he didn't have, you know, anything, you know, he didn't have like, you know, video game systems and all this other stuff. And I said, well, you know what, you can have my 2600 and I gave him that and all the control, all the joysticks that (laughs) I bought through the years, which were a lot of them and all of my games at that point, I think I had close to 30 games. And it was only 30 because I was really discerning when it came to games. You know, if it if it if it didn't grab me and just catch my interest and keep my interest, you know, either I rented it from Video Connection, which I will talk about in a future episode, or did I already? Oh boy. Hold on a minute. Let me scroll back to episode five because I think I talked about it. No, I did not. Okay, that's good. Okay, then that's coming. That's coming in a future episode. I think it's like episode nine, or something like that. Or it's either eight or eight or nine. But um, anyway. So, I mean, they. So yeah, I just out of the kindness of my heart, I gave it to him. You know, it was for a good cause. It was to you know to entertain somebody else you know, um, as a matter of fact, that'll be coming up in uh, episode 10 when I talk about the video connection. Um, so yeah, I just gave it to him and I never really looked back until probably I moved down to Florida in 93 and I moved in with my roommate and she was a huge video game head. I mean, she had, you know, a 2600 and she had, oh goodness, I want to say like 50, 60 games, and she was getting more because she was a collector, she probably still has that stuff now, I think about it I need to ask her, but anyway um, so you know, from Christmas 81 going into 82, when um, Star Raiders came out, and Defender came out, and I got my mother to buy me both of those games which was a grand total of like, 70 bucks (laughs) you know and things like that, you know, all the way to buying, like, games like, uh, Stargate, um, finding gems like Solar Fox and Space Master X7, you know, which is a game that I like, like, going to, like, um, Dolphin, uh, from Activision and Quest, which were my two favorite, uh, Activision games, you know, to renting out a bunch of these games at Video Connection, bringing them home for a week and playing them. And figuring out if they were worth keeping or not. And if I wanted to keep them, I could just go to another store, like go to KB Toy in the mall and buy it, or go to Sears downtown and buy it. You know, if I get the money for my mom, that was. But anyway, yeah, the Atari 2600 just was a wonderful gaming system, and it, you know, provided me with countless hours of fun, camaraderie, and entertainment. You know, fun playing the games, camaraderie with my friends who would come over my house or I'd go over someone else's house who had a 2600. I'd bring my games and we'd play, you know, play my games and so forth. And, you know, a little game swapping for a little bit and things like that. I I mean, Christmas 81 was one of the better Christmases in my life, but Christmas 82 was better. And I will get to that in a future episode, which is the next one or excuse me I'm sorry it will be episode number 8 so you got episode 8 for oh I'm sorry I'm looking at the wrong thing no I put that way down that's like episode 19 <laughs> where christmas 82 uh for christmas 82 so stay tuned you know yeah I fully plan on recording it all the way to that point if not past it so um you have any stories about if you're old enough to remember Christmas of '81 and what you got and things like that, or if you got a twenty-six hundred for your, your birthday or for Christmas, and you got and you've got some stories and some things to share, drop me a line at, at brian.com. Okay, from there, we will go to Home Systems. There's no place like home. Hey guys, I'm going home. This is Arcade. Shall we play a game? Love to. Screw you guys. I'm a I'm going home! Home systems. Okay. Of course, I'm going to start with the system that I didn't start at all, but it certainly was a cornerstone of modern video gaming. And again, on my soapbox for a minute, before anyone out there poo it and calls it basic or uh, primitive or whatever, just remember, without this gaming system, you don't have what you have. There's no PlayStation 4. There's no Xbox One. You know, I would even go so far as to say, Without the Atari 2600 coming out, it wasn't, you know, a lot of things would not take place. So take that for data, (laughs) with all apologies to Coach David Fisdale. Anyway, uh, the Atari 2600, let's do a little information from Wikipedia. The Atari 2600, or Atari Video Computer System, or Atari VCS before November of 82, is a home video game console from Atari Incorporated released on September 11th, 1977, and is credited with popularizing the use of microprocessor-based hardware and games contained on ROM cartridges, a format first used with the Fairchild Channel F in 1976. This contrasts with the older model of having dedicated hardware that could play only those games that were physically built into the unit. The 2600 was bundled with two joystick controllers, A conjoined pair of paddle controllers and a game cartridge. Initially combat, but later Pac-Man. Yes. Um, Yeah, when the Atari first came out in 77, I'm trying to remember who did the contest, but there was a contest where you could actually win an Atari 2600, and I think it was like the first 12 games. I'm not 100% certain who did it. I think it was McDonald's. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty certain it was McDonald's. Either it was McDonald's or it was Burger King. I think it was McDonald's though. But yeah, you know, when this thing came out, people bought these things up like crazy. Between the really good success that Atari was having in the arcades, starting in the mid-70s and going straight through. On top of that. You know, then they come out with this, and, you know, that's why I call 1980 the year of Atari, because that's when Atari seriously started cranking out tons of arcade games. Um, oh wow, I take that back. The introductory price of an Atari 2600 in 1977 money was $199, which was a lot, (laughs) I mean, seriously. It was a lot. It was crazy. Um, and I, the average price of games when it first came out was right around 30 bucks. So you had all of these. Um, $199 in 77 money equates to $804.96 in 2017 money. So think about that. <laughs> think about that. I mean, yeah, like I said in the previous segment, you know, I didn't get a twenty six hundred until four years late, or four, yeah, four years later, nineteen eighty one, Christmas of eighty one, and that by that time the price had dropped down to about a hundred and forty, and my mother said, "Okay, I'll get you that, and I'll get you a TV, and." I better not hear anything from you until the, until Christmas of next year. And of course I said yes, but you know, by the time, oh God, I want to say like August or not August, April of 82 came around. I was banging my mother for money to buy games. That's when I got a uh, defender and that's when I got star Raiders, but I digress. So, uh, let's see. The Atari 2600 sold moderately well in its first few years, relying principally on ports of arcade games, both from Atari and Title's license from others. Disagreements over sales potential to 2600 led Nolan Bushnell to leave Atari in 1978, following the release of Atari's licensed versions version of Space Invaders from Taito in 1980. Yeah, that was huge. After that happened, the 2600 became widely successful, leading to the creation of third-party game developers, notably Activision, and competition from other home console makers such as Coleco and Mattel Electronics by 1982. Uh, Atari invested heavily in two games for the 2600, Pac-Man, and E.T. the Extraterrestrial. This is where it started to go south. This is where it got sideways. Uh, these both these games became commercial failures for Atari and contributed to the video game crash of 1983. Yes. Yes. And the 2600 was shelved as the industry recovered, while Warner sold off the home console division of Atari to Commodore CEO Jack Tramiel. The new... Atari Corporation under Tramiel, re-released a low-cost streamlined version of 2600 in 1986, along with the Atari 7800 that boasted backwards compatibility with the 2600. Ultimately, production of 2600 and other home consoles ended in 1992, with an estimated 30 million units of the 2600 sold as of 2004. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. 30 million units. I believe it. Anybody who was anybody back in the day had a 2600, you know, at the very least. Some people who had more money, they had, um, they had, you know, they got uh, the Intellivision uh, or they got the ColecoVision, which came out in 1982, which was a massive, massive, massive success because they got the license to get to do Donkey Kong. So I'm just saying that yeah, the 2600 was absolutely just crazy with um people buying it and buying games, you know, and have, you know, having game parties and so forth and so on. It was awesome. I loved it. I mean, uh, one of the best things I could find back in the day was going to Sears. Um, I want to say the first time I saw this particular 2600 kiosk was when I went to, um, uh, my aunt's place in, uh, in, um, summer of 82. I, I visited my aunt in Virginia and I stayed with her over most of the summer um, and she was a nurse, so she was working through, from the morning through the, the middle to late afternoon. And so when she went out and, uh, her husband, my uncle Joe went out, you know, they both went to work, even though they were older, um, I would have to, you know, go out and, you know, find my own amusement and so I did and I mean I walked all over um, Petersburg Virginia back back in the day when it was safe <laughs> to do so moderately um, I remember going out to the main drag and first I would go downtown see what was down there there was an arcade down there which was pretty cool but when I went the other way and I want to say it was more or less south I think, along this street and along this avenue, and I just kept going along it and long and along and I think I walked maybe like four miles or something like that. And I found a mall, and that in that mall there was a Sears. And I also found, I also found an arcade, I mean, a legitimate arcade, which was kind of weird because that arcade was not doing a lot of business, which was unfortunate. I mean, whatever I went in there, there weren't a lot of people in there. It must have been the wrong time of day or something. But, so, going to this mall with the Sears in it, there were actually two malls, now I think about it. there's a small, smaller mall which had an Aladdin's castle in it, but it was closed down, which was so unfortunate. That, that was like, oh man, I only wish I could have been here when this arcade was open because... I read about um uh, I read about uh Aladdin's Castle arcades and the other arcades that some of the video game manufacturers would would put out and you know I wish that I was able to see what this arcade was all about but yeah it closed down by the time I got down there which was weird um but I remember going into that Sears Just to kind of get out of the heat because this is summertime in Virginia, which is no joke. Um, So I remember just going in there just to kind of cool off and to just hang out for a little bit before I started the trek to go back home to my aunt's house. And I remember going into the toy department and they had a full-on Atari 2600 kiosk. Full-on. Where they had every game that Atari had put out to that point in 1982, I think just short. I think just short of Pac-Man. I think I could be wrong. I, they may have included Pac-Man, but I don't think it was in there. But they had every single game Atari put out. It was awesome. It was absolutely awesome. I would love to f- love to see someone who had has one of these uh, one of these kiosks. I mean, basically, the controllers were built into the kiosk. It basically looked like more or less an oversized arcade game. You know, it was bigger than an arcade game, obviously, because it had full-size TV for the screen, and um, I remember... Just hitting this you know, basically you could hit the uh, game the game select button and it went through all of the games that it had and it had every single one. I don't even know how many games it had at that point, but yeah, it was really, really, really cool. So I made an excuse to go to this mall every single day. I would walk over there. And I would play, and I would play, and I would play. I mean, I remember playing everything from Adventure to Asteroids to Missile Command. You know, I want to say it had Yars' Revenge, but it might not have. I think Yars' Revenge came out a little later. But it had, I mean, it had like, oh God, I want to say at least, I think by this time in 82, I think they had like 70 or 80 games, something ridiculous like that. I mean, I'd have to go on Atari websites to get the exact number, which I'm not going to do, but it had a massive amount of games. It was crazy. I mean, I would be there so much, sometimes the salespeople would see me coming because they knew if I I was there, I was not going anywhere for several hours while I played these things. And they would come in and shut it off after a while because I would just be there and be there and be there. That's just how it was for me. That was just I. I was so enthralled by this machine that I mean I was just just taken away from it. It was crazy. But I mean I would love to see if somebody actually has one of these uh, kiosks has two two joysticks for two players for two player games. Um, it had the paddle wheels in you know paddle wheels in it so you could play all the games that had paddles like uh breakout super breakout um warlords stuff like that it was i mean it was crazy i mean it was absolutely insane but you know like i said when like i said in the previous segment when i had my atari i was playing it constantly if i wasn't playing the games that i had i was borrowing games from friends or I was going to the video connection and renting games for a week. I was going to friends' houses and friend and family friends' houses and playing the twenty six hundred there because they always had different games than I did, which was cool. You know, I mean, I remember one of my the son of one of my uh, mother's friends. Um, we would just get together at his place and we would just play. You know, play 2600 games all the time. I played games with um, my stepbrother, um, you know, all of the time. And, I mean, I have nothing but fond memories of the 2600. I still play 2600 games to this day in emulation. And <laughs> I'm not ashamed to admit that. You know, I'm not as fanatical about the system as I once was, but I still have a very, very soft spot in my heart for the 2600. And like I said, it is the cornerstone and one of the most best-selling video game systems of all time. Top three, if I'm not mistaken. Definitely top five, but I think it's top three. Um But yeah, I mean, it's one of those, if you don't already know about it, find out about it. Even if you've got to do it in emulation, I think there's some websites that actually play 2,600 games on them um, if you want to go that direction. But yeah, I mean, it's... It's it's a piece of video gaming history, and the games still are challenging. They still hold up. And, I mean, of course the graphics are quote-unquote primitive. Of course they are. There's no getting around that. You know, it's a... 2k system you know as opposed to the uh to the um playstation 4 and the xbox one which are what 256 bit now i can't remember what it is but you know it's one of those things where yeah the games uh, look bad to the uneducated eye but it's uh One of those gaming systems you need to, at the very least, check out. At the very, very least. So yeah, that's the Atari 2600 in a nutshell. You know, uh, questions, comments, stories, experiences, you know what to do. Get a hold of me at arcadeaddictbrian.com At gmail.com, excuse me. So, let's see. That's all the waxing I'm going to do on... Uh, arcade rundown or excuse me oh god home systems so now we're going to go with are you experienced i'm too old for this hiding in front seats like a teenager oh i think i'm getting too old for this stuff i'm getting too old for this listen you was born too old for this i'm getting too old for this I'm getting too old for this lying like red arse to my chasing other men's cattle i'm getting too old for this sort of thing maybe you're getting too old for this what do you think, huh? I'm not too old for this shit. I'm not too old for this shit. You will not We're not too old for this shit. No, we're, we're not, not too old, old for this shit. We're not too, too old for this shit. like you believe We're, we're not, not too old for this shit. shit. Yeah. We're not too old for I'm this not not shit. I'm not gonna buy a hemorrhoid cookie. We're not too old for this shit. Are you experienced? Okay. Now, my memory is a little bit fuzzy as to exactly when this game came out, but I do remember seeing it in, like early 82 or yeah i think it was early 82 but yeah so the game of course is the sequel to pac-man although it's more or less unofficial even to this day it's unofficial even though everyone acknowledges it as a sequel to pac-man ms pac-man okay a little information from it from wikipedia once again Ms. Pac-Man is an arcade video game from the Golden Age. Again, from 1978 to 1983. Um, it was produced by Illinois-based Midway Manufacturing Corporation, the North American publisher for Pac-Man. Um, Ms. Pac-Man was released in, F- in North America in February of 1982 and is one of the most popular video game arcade video games of all time, which there's no doubting that. Absolutely no doubt of that. You know, I would probably even say it's like... Phew, Top, th- top five, definitely, if not top three. Um, the popularity led to its adoption as an official title by Namco, the creator of Pac-Man, and re- which was released in the United States in late 1980. Ms. Pac-Man introduced a female protagonist, new maze designs, and several other improved gameplay changes over the original Pac-Man. Ms. Pac-Man became the most successful American-produced arcade game of 1982, selling 115,000 arcade cabinets. Okay. Um, basically, the history of it... Yeah, we'll go into it a little bit. Um, Ms. Pac-Man was original con- originally conceived as an enhancement kit for Pac-Man called Crazy Otto, created by programmers employed by the General Computer Corporation. While Crazy Otto was under development, GCC settled a lawsuit with Atari over their Missile Command conversion kit, Super Missile Attack. And aside, I've played that once. That's a very hard game. (laughs) They took Missile Command, which was hard enough to begin with, and they made it really hard. I've only seen a Super Missile Attack machine twice. That's it. Just twice. In my life. One time was in... I forget what the first time it was. The second time was in uh, Washington, D.C., when I found an arcade wandering around downtown. Um, Part of the settlement terms barred GCC from selling future conversion kits without consent from the original game manufacturers. Rather than scrapping Crazy Auto entirely, the programmers chose to present the completed game to Midway, Namco's American distributor of Pac-Man. Midway had become impatient and waiting for Namco to release its next Pac-Man game, which would be Super Pac-Man, and were enthusiastic about that such a game had come to their attention. They bought the rights to Crazy Otto and worked with GCC and Namco to prepare the game for release. In final development, the game's name and characters experienced multiple changes. Sprites, text, and minor game elements were altered to better reflect the Pac-Man series. The the game was initially titled Super Pac-Man, containing Pac-Man as the lead character. Inspired by the cutscenes of Crazy Otto featuring Crazy Otto's female counterpart, the the lead character was made female, and the game was renamed Pac-Woman. That name was dropped in favor of Miss Pac-Man, but the developers then realized that given the third intermission showing a stork delivering a baby to Pac-Man and the player's character, confusion could arise about their relationship. In light of this, the name was changed to Mrs. Pac-Man, and then finally to Ms. Pac-Man, which rolled off the tongue easier. Yeah, programmer Steve Golson said, in the span of just two weeks, it went from Crazy Otto to Super Pac-Man to Miss Pac-Man. These later changes—Miss, Mrs., and Ms.—all occurred all occurred within seventy-two hours of actual production. Which is right, you know. That, that I mean, that's a hell of a. Uh, Hell of a story, and it continues. After the game, after the game became wildly popular, and it was by a, a ridiculous amount. It was. It was so popular, it's not even funny. Um, Midway and GCC under briefly, uh, excuse me, undertook a brief legal battle concerning royalties. Uh, the Killer List of Video Games website notes that the game was accomplished without Namco's consent causing both companies to eventually turn rights over to Namco. Ms. Ms. Pac-Man was reportedly the first in a series of unauthorized sequels that eventually led to the termination of the licensing agreement between Namco and Midway. GCC founder Doug McRae has disputed stories that the game was manufactured without Namco's blessing, claimed that then-Namco president Masaya Nakamura had even provided feedback over character artwork during the game's development how about that so so there's a bit of a conflict there as to exactly what happened but yeah uh basically this and a couple of other games that's what basically killed the licensing agreement between Namco and Midway I've heard that story from the Retroist I've heard it from Vic Sage and you know it only makes sense you know I mean, once you hear the entire story. I'm only going over the bare bones of it, which is what's in in Wikipedia. Okay. Gameplay. Um, It's pretty much the same as Pac-Man, except you have four mazes that you will see if you're good enough. Um, The first two levels, that's the original. The first two levels, that's the first maze, which is pink. The following three mazes are light blue, um, six, seven, eight, and nine are brown, and then there's one at dark blue through levels 10 through 14. After level 14, every four mazes the configuration changes. Um, So, also the ghost behavior, uh, the way the ghosts behave are different. Uh, They have semi-random movement, which it says it prevents the use of patterns to clear each round, which isn't exactly true. But like I said, I'm, um, I'm trying to remember when I said it, but I think it was in the best, or excuse me, the top tens of 1981, I think. As a matter of fact, I'm consulting my notes just to make sure. But, excuse me, no, I take that back. But the thing was with Ms. Pac-Man, you could have patterns. But you had to be a good enough game player to not be stuck inside those patterns. Because um, when the level first starts, ghosts can go pretty much in any direction. Or not any direction. Some of them will go to specific places in the maze. Others will um, move according, you know, will move differently, like, uh, the four ghosts are Inky, Blinky, Pinky, and Sue, and, uh, most of the times, Pinky and Blinky, or excuse me, Pinky and Inky would go to more or less where they normally go in the maze, um, and so would, uh, Sue. Blinky would kind of just go, you would just sort of go random, if you will. He sometimes he'll go, you know, to where another ghost is, sometimes he'll go to a place where no other ghost is, and that's what kept you on your toes. It made you adapt. It made you kind of change your pattern a little bit to keep from getting trapped and eaten. So, I mean, that's that in itself is what made the game really challenging. <clears throat> so, Um, you know, that was one of the things that they did. Um, it it says even in, uh, Wikipedia, Blinky and Pinky move randomly in the first several seconds of each level until the first reversal, which means that they'll both, they'll go to wherever they're going to go to and then they do a reversal. They just reverse their field. They reverse their direction of travel. Um instead of appearing in the center of the maze, uh, fruits will emerge from one of the tunnels and randomly move around the maze until it reaches one of the other tunnels where it will exit if you don't eat it. Uh, sometimes the um, fruit will, it seems like it will evade you. If it's If you're chasing it and it's reaching an intersection before you can get to it, sometimes it will just, Turn in one particular direction is kind to try and avoid you. At least that's how it felt to me. Um, Let's see. Um, The points for the game it's again 10 points per dot, 50 points per power pellet. Um, The ghosts you, you know, eat once you eat a power pellet, once again, just like Pac Man, 200, 400, 800, 1600 points. Um, the fruits they start at level one with the cherry, which is a hundred. The strawberry, which is two hundred. The orange is five hundred. Pretzel is seven hundred. The apple is a thousand. The pear is two thousand, and the banana is five thousand. After level seven, uh, the fruit that appears after you eat a certain amount of dots is completely random. <laughs> which is kind of funny, because when I'm playing this Pac-Man, you know, if I'm Looking for as I'm going through the maze, after I reach past level seven, I start looking for it. And if it's a pear, an apple, or a banana, I will make I will go sh- straight for it just to just to get it to get the points. Um If it's like a cherry, strawberry, an orange, or even a pretzel, sometimes I'll conduct my business of. Uh, clearing the maze and luring the ghosts to one particular corner near Power pellets, so I can eat them all. Then after I do that, then I'll chase after it. Or I'll just let it go, because sometimes, you know, uh, a 100-point cherry is just kind of not worth risking yourself. So, I mean, I remember when this came out, they say the release was 82, and I'm not so sure that's true. I mean... When you look at, you know, I think it came out in, like, late 81, but I could be mistaken. I could be wrong. But anywhere there was a Ms. Pac machi- Ms. Pac-Man machine when it came out, there were people playing it. Tons of people, especially in the beginning. The funny part was that the arcade in Trumbull Ball did not have a Ms. Pac-Man machine. They had a Ms. Pac-Man machine in the Liggett's drugstore, or excuse me, the Rexall drugstore on the... Uh, on the main level and in the back toward near the pharmacy, which is weird. Cause that, that store ended up having like tons and tons of games just in there for like two, three, four months at a time or something like that. And then they change it. Cause I mean, I remember they had Ms. Pac-Man, they had Galaga, they had Zaxxon, they had Xerion, <laughs> which is one of my personal favorite games, but yeah, so, you know, and I think there was another store. My memory is not exactly helping me right now, but there was another store in the mall that had a Ms. Nice Pac-Man machine in it. Um, um. Yeah, so the gameplay is exactly like Pac-Man. You know, it's the only thing is, is that there are really no set patterns. You can do a general pattern about how you're going to clear the dots And get the fruits, and get the and clear the obvious problem areas where it's very easy for you to get to get trapped. Um, I'm looking at the main screen on the Wikipedia page, which is the first round, and there are one, two, three. More like, yeah, you know, about three places where you can easily trap yourself if you either get greedy or you're not doing what you can to shake the ghosts off your trail. Um, and just like in Pac-Man, my strategy was to always clear the problem areas as quickly as possible so you'd never have to deal with them, you know, in that level. Um, while you're doing it, lure the ghosts as close to the power pellet that you're sitting at as you can and wait to the last possible moment before eating it, then chase them down and get your points. Um, at least in my experience, um, if it, it wasn't that hard to get a perfect score on the first level, which was like, what, 14,600 points, but it was a bit more of, it wasn't that much of a challenge for the second level either. But it became a little bit more of a challenge on the third and fourth level, because now the ghosts are not uh, changing for very long, you know, for you know, becoming vulnerable. So now you sometimes have to issue chasing down all the ghosts instead of instead you're just basically going to to uh, gobble the ones that are closest to you and represent the greatest threat. Like with Blinky, which is, he's by far the fastest ghost in the game and only gets faster as you eat more and more dots in the maze. Um, Whenever, it's more of a priority to lure him and lure Pinky to the power pellet and just gobble those guys up and then go right back to finishing the maze. And it just keeps going from there. And it's pretty much the same thing for... Uh, the light blue maze, uh, the brown maze, even though I don't think that's the color, the color brown, but they call it brown, so I'll go with it. And the dark blue maze, it's the same thing. When the level begins, try to clear out as many problem areas as possible so you don't have to go through them and and leave yourself open to be trapped by the ghosts. Lure them as close to the power pellets as you can. You know, Gobble as many as you can get the fruits especially if they're a high value high score value like at least a thousand points you know it's at a thousand points it's more or less worth the risk to go chasing after it um as long as you don't entrap yourself so things like that i mean it's one of those games where i still get a get a kick out of playing it um one of my friends uh bought me a Ms. Pac-Man, um, tiny arcade machine when they were The Rage a couple of years ago. Um, and it's sitting on my entertainment center in my bedroom. You know, I've played it a couple of times, but unfortunately it's... They say it's arcade-like, but aside from the sound effects, it's not that great. I'd rather play Ms. Pac-Man in emulation or go to an arcade and play it. I mean, I've already talked about, um... The Ms. Pac-Man with the speed hack at the arcade in Brighton, and it has a funky scoring setup. It's like 25 points per dot. Um, I think it's like 100 points per power pellet, and the scoring for the ghosts are 200, 400, 800, 6,000. (laughs) <laughs> it's really really weird you can really rack up a high a really high score i mean i put up a score i think my high score on the game is like six hundred sixty-five thousand. you know and just by comparison just on a quote-unquote normal ms pac-man machine i can put up probably 130 140 000 on a good day so yeah um that's ms pac-man and you have any stories, comments, questions, what have you, about Ms. Pac-Man, just get a hold of me at arcadeaddictbrian.com. And so, we head on over to On The Road. <music> Brian here and this is on the road. I'm coming to you live from the one of the main roads in Northeast Indiana. I'm heading towards another one of my customer stops so I figured it's time to do another segment. Actually this is a re-recording of a segment that I recorded sometime earlier this year, but for the life of me, when I went to find it, to add it to, or at least uh, rename the file in order to add it to a future podcast, I couldn't find it, which was a little bit of a bummer, but it is what it is. Um, So anyway, this is a re-recording of that. Um, Basically, this is my thoughts on arcades versus game rooms. Now, when I talk about game rooms, it's a rather broad interpretation. Basically, that can be anything from one arcade machine in a vestibule of a supermarket or department store going all the way up to an actual dedicated game room in a bowling alley or something like that because throughout my you know, pre-teen and teenage years I was always on the hunt for arcade games always um, just in my neighborhood uh, our corner store The Beachmont Market, they had a couple of arcade machines in the back, including a Berserk machine. I can't remember what the other ones were. I think, I want to say the other one was a Scramble machine, but I'm not 100% certain. I think it was. It's either that or Super Cobra. One of the two. But yeah, having an arcade machine in your store was a really good way to get extra money i mean all you had to do was basically either buy or lease a machine preferably used because most of the places i would find games in you know especially when it came to like you know department stores supermarkets and mom and pop corner stores you know, they all had like, you know, older machines, beat more beat-up machines. So they probably bought them for you know five hundred thousand dollars. And they'd make their money back fairly quickly. Especially in the golden age, which was, you know, once again 78 to 83. And most of the stores started carrying machines in their stores, I would probably say from like 1981 to like, oh God, I'd say probably like, ooh, I'd say probably 1987, 1988, somewhere in there, um, so, so yeah, the corner store, Beachmont Market had a game, had games in uh, there, in the back of their store, I remember the Merritt Theater, which was my neighborhood, of uh, movie theater, I've seen so many movies there. I mean, I can, I can just, I can just, just thinking about it, just thinking about the number of movies I saw there is kind of mind-blowing, from when my Aunt Karen used to take me to, uh, to the movie theater. I mean, my earliest memories of seeing movies there was like Jonathan Livingston Siegel, and i think my aunt took me to go see jaws in 1975 when it came out um but yeah the merit theater they had a stargate machine and a ms pac-man machine in the lobby um let's see but um let's see what else going up main street towards trumbull mall you had hmm, you had well there was a video store but that was like oh god I want to say that was like early 90s when that video store came around and they had like an SNK machine in there that was like early 90s Um, going further up the street in the Little shopping center where you know had the Burger King, the Town Fair Tire, Jimmy's Army and Navy, um, the little little news sh- news corner slash mom and pop store there. You know they had Moon Cresta in the back and another machine which I cannot remember. I've been racking my brain for a long time ever since I thought of. Re- since, ever, since before I recorded this segment the first time and I can't remember what else they had but they had a mooncrest machine, I remember that um, going across the street to the Galaxy Diner they had two Space Invaders machines which I talked about in uh, episode what, one it's either one or two where I was talking about Space Invaders. I think it was episode one. And, you know, they had two Tato Space Invaders machines. You know, legit Space Invaders machines. They were they were actual Tato machines. They weren't um, uh, Midway machines. Uh, let's see, what else? Across the street from the Galaxy Diner, um, a little further north, there was a record store. They had a couple of uh, games in there. They had, like, uh, Spiders. They had that. And they, they, the, the games they had were kind of esoteric, kind of weird. But, yeah, they had Spiders and a couple other ones. Speaking of that, I think I'm going to play Spiders when I go home uh, on emulation because it's been a very long time since I've seen that game. Now, as a matter of fact, yeah, that's the last time I actually saw it. And I'm trying to remember what year it was when they had Spiders in there. I want to say it was 82 to 83, somewhere in there. Um, going further up Main Street, um, of course, Bolarama actually had a legitimate game room. They always had a couple, at least a couple of pinball machines. They had the... Bolarama always had uh, at least three video game machines, at least three, probably a, minimum, I probably a bare minimum of three, and at least two pinball machines all the time. From when I first started going in there from 1980 all the way up to when Bolarama closed down in I wanna say 1988 or 89, somewhere in there. Um, continuing up Main Street towards Trumbull Mall um, in the Brookside Shopping Center um, the Liggett's Drugstore uh, they had games in there I mean, that's the first time I saw Space Fury that was the first time I ever saw and played that game and that game was kind of hard it took me a while to figure it out and watching my buddy Mark play it a couple of times, you know he he had Mark had pretty you know pretty decent natural talent when it came to video games. He I mean he figured it out pretty quickly. You know he was he was really good. Um, <laughs> I remember. Um, I'm trying to remember. There was a thread on Facebook, and somebody mentioned. I think it was like a game that you were, uh, you know, I think someone asked like a video game you were a master of, and I think I said Karate Champ. And I'll talk more about this when I get to that in Are You Experienced? Um, but just a little preview of that um, Karate Ch- Champ came out in '84, and I, and I found that I got really good at that game really quickly and I almost beat that game one day in the Bullarama game room. Um, there were constantly games coming in and out of there. I mean, they, you know, they always had, you know, good pinball machines, good games. They got Missile Command shortly after it came out in 1980 because I remember going there one day, you know, on my way home from the mall and... I saw they had a missile command machine in there, and it was like two or three guys in there, you know, just like in the Trumbull Arcade, they had row, a row upon row of quarters across the bezel of the machine, or not the bezel, the, the low bottoms of the screen, bottom of the glass where it met the control panel, and they were just playing the game to kind of figure stuff out and get good at it. You know, I mean, these guys were, like, oh, God, I want to say, like, 16, 17, 18 years old. And I was only, like, oh, God, 1980, I was, like, what, 11? 11 going on 12? So, uh, yeah, Bolaron Game Room, Liggetts, which had, like, Space Fury and, like, one other game. And I think they got out of the arcade game racket pretty quickly. Um, McCrory's of course they had a Moon Cresta and the difference is and I thought about this after I talked about Moon Cresta uh, in uh, my top tens uh, top ten video games of 1980 um, I remember they, they were the exact same game pretty much the exact same difficulty level but they were two different machines the machine in the, uh, little, uh, newsstand, uh, right next to Town Fair Tire in that little shopping, in that little strip mall, if you will, um, that one had a actual control stick. That one had a control stick and the one in Mercury's department store in the vestibule. That one had actual control buttons, left and right buttons. And, you know, I remember just, you know, playing both of them, you know, of course there were times where I would play the Mooncrest at the McCrory's and like I told in the story, you know, I was banned from McCrory's because, you know, I got caught shoplifting there one day. Freaking matchbox cars, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, anytime the manager saw me, you know, in the vestibule playing games, he kicked me out of there and threatened to call the cops and all that kind of stuff. You know, yeah. You know, things like that. So, um, anytime he saw me playing Cresta, you know, he'd come right over there and shoot me out of there, threatening to call the cops and stuff. But anyway, so um, let's see. Then, of course, there was the Trumbull Mall Arcade. Um, and, of course, the games, the stores in the Trumbull Mall Arcade. Let's see, uh, the Rexall in Trumbull Mall had a game, uh, G-Fox had one, especially when they had that Asteroids Deluxe Tournament I talked about in the previous episode, or excuse me, that's in episode four, that should be coming out soon, it'll be out by the time you guys hear this, uh, but, let's see, what else, who else had games in there, Reed's Department Store didn't have any. Um, Woolworth's didn't have any. There was like one other store in there that actually... Oh, that's right. There um, There was a little bar slash Italian restaurant right up the corridor from the arcade. They had a Missile Command cocktail, which I thought was the coolest thing. You know, and I would go in there and play it every once in a while until somebody from there would kick me out because, of course, I'm underage. I don't need to be in there without uh, a parent who's of legal drinking age. But every once in a while, I'd see somebody playing Missile Command in there, and, you know, I would just kind of walk in there. It was, like, right near the entrance to the bar, so I'd walk in there just to watch it play. As soon as their game was over, I'd leave. Um, So, yeah, just up in that area, you know, in, you know, my My home area. Those were the ones that I knew about. Um, Going south on Main Street, heading towards downtown. Oh, let's see. Oh, there was another uh, little mom and pop store right in the Main Street, Beachmont Avenue. uh, Not renting, I'm sorry. uh, Jewett Avenue area. There was like on the corner of Main and Jewett Avenue. There was a little mom and pop newsstand slash grocery store. They had video games in the back. I think at one point, I think they had like four machines, maybe five. And the thing was is that all of the kids who in my neighborhood, including myself, we got banned from there because I don't know how they found out but some of the kids in my neighborhood found out that the owners of the store were lesbians and you know you know let's understand something i'm not making excuses but in that time You know, we're talking, like, what? Oh, God, what? 1983, 82, 83, 84, I think was when that store was open and it was actually doing decent business. You know, me personally, I didn't give a shit. I did not care. You know, who owned the store, you know, what their sexual orientation was, I didn't give a shit. It didn't affect me in any kind of way. But I remember... I was with a, you know, some of my friends, we were in there playing video games, and one of the owners is in there, you know, behind the counter, and all that kind of stuff, and all of a sudden, uh, all the kids, you know, all, all, all my friends started making fun of this woman because of her sexual orientation. And, you know, it's that crude kind of nasty humor that teenage boys have, and... I remember saying that, you know... I remember saying to, you know... My friends at the time that, you know... That's kind of not right. Who the hell cares? But, you know... Without mentioning any names... You know, the most of the kids I grew up with... Were not exactly open-minded. You know... Anybody who... You know, was homosexual was a target. You know... Not for violence, but there was going to be some ridicule going down. And, you know, I saw it on a couple of occasions. As a matter of fact, (laughs) now I think about it, later on in my life, I was kind of subjected to it because there was a time where everyone, not everyone, but some people in my neighborhood thought I was gay because they never saw me with anybody, you know, with, with any girls because, you know... Not a lot of the girls in my neighborhood interested me. Let's just put it that way. And the ones that interested me, I was an awkward, geeky kid. And this was in the days of, you know, where, you know, hip-hop was reigning supreme. And I was just, I just wasn't that guy, you know. And any girl that, I just wasn't cool. I wasn't smooth. You know, I didn't have a rap. I didn't have a game. You know, I didn't have game. So, yeah, any girl that, you know, I was interested in and I tried to talk to, it didn't go very well for me. But, anyway. um, So, basically, yeah. The, the owners put up with that for maybe, maybe like once, twice, th- maybe three times before they kicked us all out. And... You know, we were banned from going in there for, you know, and everything. I think, and I remember, now I think about it, they actually gave me some static one day because I was sent to the store by my grandmother to buy her cigarettes. No, 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 it wasn't my, was it my grandmother? No, it was my grandfather, excuse me, it was my grandfather. He sent me to the store to buy him cigarettes and I went to that store And I bought the cigarettes. This is long before it was a federal law that you had to be 18 years old or older to buy cigarettes. Because I bought cigarettes for my mom, my aunts, my uncles, my grandfather, my grandmother. You know, I think my brother once or twice. (laughs) But, yeah, there wasn't an age limit on cigarettes. So, you know, I would just go and buy them and basically... I remember one of the owners giving me some static because I was buying cigarettes to the point where they wanted to see my teeth or she wanted to see my teeth. And I just remember being just so damn offended by that. I'm like, I, would even, I even told him, I said, these cigarettes aren't for me. These are for my grandfather. And, you know, just it being a whole big kind of hassle. So after that, I never went in there. But that was another place that had games. Um, okay, I'm at a uh, customer stop, so I'm going to pause this. I shall be right back. Okay, I'm back. Okay, to continue. Um, heading down Main Street, there was never a lot. Um, there are corner stores. I mean, going down Main Street, going past, going towards St. Vincent's Hospital there was loopy's drugstore they never had one there was a corner there was a corner store right next door to loopy's they never had one that I remember um, going further down by Capitol Avenue uh, there was a corner store there they didn't have one that I remember uh, then there wasn't much until you got downtown um, of course as I've mentioned previously um you had the bridgeport train station they always had games they always had a galaga machine and a couple other games that's the first place i saw battle zone um let's see what else uh of course the bridgeport bus station they usually swapped out ms pac-man machines with the galaga machine in the in the train station which was kind of funny but yeah i always played ms pac-man in there um, what else? I went on, of course, the News Corner. <laughs> I can never forget the News Corner because that was just a place I loved. Not only because they had games, and at one time, I wanna say they had like four or five pinball machines and like, oh God, I wanna say like four or five arcade machines. At, you know at one point they had a lot I mean main and john streets were like two uh, big intersections for public transit I mean all you had to do was go down John Street for one half block to get to the bus station then another half block to get to the train station and of course you had buses you know come you know public buses coming in and out of there all the time uh, Main Street had several bus lines going up and down it. Um, so, yeah, there were a lot of people going in, you know, coming in and out of work. So, of course, the news Corner was a place where people sort of naturally congregated, even if it was just to wait for a bus to, you know, go to work or go home or go wherever they were going. So that place always had arcade games in it. There's an arcade game that I cannot remember the name of for the life of me. But I'm going to say it here because through the years I've gone on to message boards and, you know, uh, video gaming groups, and I can never get remember this game. It was a platforming game where you basically went down into a... Uh, went down into, like, this, uh, down into this bunker, and the, you were armed with something like a grapple or something like that, and basically went down into this complex, down to the lowest level, and you would, you know, fight the boss enemy, you know, to, you know, finish the level and go on to the next level. And there was a trick that you could do where you could actually go once you go to the starting point at the first level, you could actually jump over the rocks or do some sort of trick where, if you timed it, you could jump over the rocks or go through the rocks or something like that. And the way that they constructed the level, it would once you went to that point, you would go, you would attack the boss enemy from behind and destroy him, and you get like a million points, like right off the bat, right off the top, and. I can't remember the name of this game. Um... I can't remember the manufacturer. I mean, I've been looking for this game ever since I knew emulation existed. And... That was one of them. I mean, the the news corner was also... You know, they had Double Dribble. Uh... That was where I had... Where I had my Wilt Chamberlain moment, that I, I like to call it, where I scored 100 points on one quarter. Um... They had Defender, Ms. Pac-Man, uh, I want to say Pac-Man Plus. I mean, they had, like, tons and tons of machines. They had Afterburner. You know, they they always had video games, always. You know, I love the news corner, and God only knows how sad I was when I back, went back to Bridgeport in 2001 and the news corner was no more. You know, it, they, it was like, I forget what it was. I think it was like a a, a consignment shop or something. You know, I was so sad when that when I saw that because that was such a staple of you know my childhood. Whatever. All right, I'm at a stop, so I'm going to pause it. Be right back. Okay, I'm back. The news corner, by far, is my favorite quote unquote game room of all time. I mean, I remember uh, growing up on the east end of Bridgeport, and of course there was the Dip and Sip, which was like the first real game room that was local to me that I knew about because I was going to the Dip and Sip in 1976. You know, 76, 77, you know, in there. So yeah, the Dip and Sip was always there. Um, They had uh, always got uh, pinball machines. They had the old school pinball machines. They had the newer ones with the digital score readouts and stuff. That's where I, you know, ran into Night Driver which I talked about, um, that baseball home run pinball game, which I can't remember, which I actually found in the arcade the first time I went there. Um, You know, games like that. And then there was a little uh, arcade slash game room a little ways down Stratford Avenue from the Dip and Sip. I can't remember what the name of it was, but I got to know the owner and his son really well. Um, God, what was his name? I want to say his name was Carlos, but I might be mistaken. The owner's name, I think, was Carlos, but I think I might be wrong about that. But his son's name was Major. And uh, actually him, and because Major was older than me. If it's 1976, I'm what seven years old going on eight my brother's like uh 11 years old going or excuse me 12 years old going on 13 and he and major i think became friends at one point guys i think major was like 14 or 15 but yeah major was always cool cool with me and i used to hang out in that place all of the time um you know when i lived on the east end um going further down Stratford Avenue towards Stratford proper um, there weren't any places that had video games in them all the way up until you got to Town Fair Center in Stratford and that place the actual Town Fair uh, Center the, the actual place didn't have games but they had Town Fair Lanes Town Fair Lanes was a huge bowling alley I mean, we're talking, like, I think, what was it, like, 60 lanes? At least 50, because it was one of those where when you walked in the building, there was the front desk in front of you, and then on either side of the front desk, there were just bowling lanes heading back towards the back of the place. And it just seemed, when I was little, it seemed like it was endless, but there were tons. I mean, I think that place was a was a stop on the, uh, the PBA, Professor Bowler's Association Tour. Yeah, I think that was a stop on the tour, actually. I think there was one time, because I can't remember what year it was, but yeah, I was really into watching uh, Wide World of Sports and watching bowling uh, when I was a kid. And I remember there was an actual bowling tour on Wide World of Sports, and it was from the Town Fair Center in Stratford which was really cool. Uh, but that place had a fantastic game room. I mean, as much as I love the Bolarama game room, the game room at Town Fair Lanes destroyed it. I mean, it was actual, like, almost mini arcade size. It was a larger room, which had plenty of room for uh pinball machines and video games in there. And I used to hang out in there all the time. I'd play games when I had the money, but that wasn't very often. And the furthest east I went when I was a kid was Stratford Roller Park. Um, As a matter of fact, let me go back to downtown Bridgeport for a second. The mosque roller rink before they closed and I think it was 1981. I think it closed in 81 um that place had video games in it you know but you know I also went there to roller skate I mean imagine my disappointment when I decide that you know yeah I'm going to go to the mosque you know drop two dollars or three dollars and skate all day you know and then just take the bus and go home in the afternoon that's what I did um But yeah, then Stratford Roller Park, that was a place I always wanted to get to. I remember there were a couple of times, (laughs) this is how bad my arcade game Jones was, that I knew Stratford Roller Park had some games. And I remember there were a couple of times where I borrowed like a friend of mine, I paid him like $5 or $10 to borrow his bike for the day. And I said, I'd be back in like, you know, two or three hours and I'd be gone like six hours. (laughs) And I remember getting on, uh, getting on that bike and just going all the way and just basically riding all the way out to Stratford, which was about uh, close to 10 miles which was a long distance for, you know, a kid who's only like 12, 13, maybe 14 years old. That was a pretty long distance. And yeah, I would just go to Stratford, try to get to Stratford Roller Park. There was one time I went there and by the time I got to Stratford, I was wiped out because I'd made a whole bunch of uh, detours. I went here, I went there, I went there, I went over there. I think one time I went out to Fairfield, and then I decided to go to Stratford from Fairfield, and by the time I got to Stratford, I was really tired, but I also knew that um, a really good friend of my aunt's lived close to Stratford Roller Park, I mean, within like, oh, God, I want to say like a quarter mile of Stratford Roller Park, and I... Went there and I just, you know, asked if I could, you know, rest there because I've been on the bike all day. And, you know, by the time, of course, and of course, the, of course, the woman was nice. She was an absolute sweetheart. She let me in. She gave me a little something to eat, a little something to drink. And I just chilled out there for a little while. And by the time I was like, okay, it's starting, you know, it's, I'm overdue. It's starting to get dark. I'm going to start going home. And uh, she said, and I feel terrible because I cannot remember her name. You know, I have a name in mind, but I don't think it's the right name because uh, I think the name I'm remembering is another friend of hers who lived actually close to me. But I remember by the time I was like, yeah, I'm going to go to Stratford Royal Park and I'm going to go there and check some stuff out by the time I got went there and got back my legs were shot they were I was exhausted you know I felt I couldn't I could barely pedal you know to a walking speed so I remember I had to swallow my pride and ask my aunt to come and get me and pick me up and take me home and um Yeah, she wasn't too happy with me. (laughs) Yeah, because basically I had to, you know, get in the car and, you know, put my bike in the trunk and then she drove me home. And it was a 15 to 20 minute drive, if not longer, maybe even a little longer, maybe like close to half an hour drive to get to her place from my house driving. And yeah. And then by the time, I got back with my friend's bike he was beside himself he was so upset and he was so upset he wanted to fight me and I basically had to smooth that over and you know you know I said I'm sorry you know I told and I told him what happened you know and he kind of calmed down and everything was cool but he said don't ever ask to borrow my bike again and I said yeah I won't and that led into actually getting my first bike in Christmas 1981. Um, but yeah, that's another story for another time. Um, but let's see, heading out west from downtown, out towards where my best friend lived in uh, Black Rock, which was the last like little township in Bridgeport before you went to, before you got to Fairfield. I mean, he lived like right near the, the line, you know, the municipality line, if you will. Um, let's see, heading west on Fairfield Avenue. Um, there wasn't very much heading out, heading out of downtown and heading out west Uh, there was, I remember where my, my friend Edgar lived, uh, there was a housing project that he lived in with his mom and his sister, um, but on Fairfield Avenue, right across the street from that housing, housing complex, there was a little corner store that always had like two or three video games in it, including, uh, Matt Mania, (laughs) which was a game that I learned how to master pretty quickly. But let's see, Matt Mania was what, 1985? So, uh, heading further out west. Um, I want to say Beverly's Pizza had a video game in it, but I don't think, I don't remember if they actually did or not. Uh, then there was, of course, Beverly uh, Theater, where me, my buddy, my best friend Rob, my buddy Edgar, and my friend Dave, we also used to get together and go see movies because it was one of those uh, $1 bargain, batten type movie theaters. Uh, I remember we saw Ghostbusters there, and yeah, when it came out in, what, 80? Was it 84, I think it was? It was either 83 or 84, I remember that. Um, And then heading out further out west... Uh, along Fairfield Avenue, where actually it became, once you crossed over into Fairfield, it became the Post Road. You know, and that is by the way, U.S. Highway 1. I mean, it joins up basically, yeah, it basically turns into U.S. Highway 1, which heads, you know, more or less west because you couldn't go south in in Connecticut because you'd wind up in, you know, uh, Long Island Sound. So U.S. 1 basically was a north? It's a northwest highway, but more or less, it's heading west through Connecticut, going into New York, going into New Jersey, and then it would start heading south that way. But along the post road, there was Marazzi's Duchess, and actually, I'm doing myself a disservice because there's a Marazzi Duchess um, on U.S. One. You know, close to where I live, and that place, that place was a, a fixture in my life and they had they got video games like in the oh god what oh i want to say late 80s early 90s but the barazzi duchess had uh video games in the middle to late 80s and then there wasn't anything of note as far as game rooms oh i'm doing myself another disservice on the post road just west of where my buddy lived and right across the street from the CVS where both my buddy, my best friend and I worked, there was a uh, bowling alley there. Um, God, I can't remember what the name of it was. For the life of me, I cannot remember. Um, But that place always had video games because there were a couple of times where I would be on my lunch break from CVS. I'd go across the street, play a couple games, then go back to work. Um. What else? But yeah, heading west along the post road, there wasn't much of anything uh, as far as game rooms went until you got to Arnie's place in Westport, which is like oh god, what seven, eight miles west of uh, where my buddy Rob's house was. But yeah, there were a couple of times we actually made a little trip of it we all got uh, bikes, Um, my buddy Dave had two bikes, and uh, my buddy Rob, I think he had one, and so, and I think uh, my buddy Edgar had one, so I remember we made a day of it, and we would you know, we basically took bikes all the way out. And, of course, we stopped along. We stopped at Blind's, which was a hobby store on the post road. You know, and, you know, we would just screw around. We were all freaking teenage kids. We were just on a lark, if you will. And we just rode to Arnie's place. We would stop in Child World. I think my friend Dave had a job there for a while. I think he was still working there at that point, but he hated it because, yeah, the management wasn't good. He got me a job there. And oh god, what year was that when I was a child? World what 1980 1986? Yeah, I had a job there for like oh god, what two or three you know, like I'd say probably about two months. I had a job there assembling uh ride on toys and bicycles, but I did, I screwed off, I did not take that job seriously at all. Or and but yeah, so. There wasn't much of game video games all the way out there, and Arnie's place was like the uh, the limit. I didn't go any further west because, let's see, further west you got into Southport, then you got into Norwalk, then you got into Stamford. You know, um, speaking of Stamford, yeah, I found some game rooms when I uh, stayed at uh, stayed with uh, my aunt my uncle and my cousin for like oh god what like two weeks or something like that but anyway um but my point is is that at least to me sometimes finding a a game room finding a game room was as much of a not a relief or relief relief is the wrong word but it was just a, you know, as much of a good thing as it was going to an arcade. Because sometimes, you know, I didn't have the money or the wherewithal to want to go to the mall, or for some reason I just didn't want to go to the mall. And, or I was just, you know, doing something else. You know, like if I was going to the east end of Bridgeport from my house on the north end, you know, to go and get my hair cut, you know. My mom would give me money and I would take the bus downtown and I would, you know, go to uh, the news corner and play games before catching the Stratford Avenue bus to go uh, east to Carter's Barbershop. That's where I went. I went to get my haircut there for a very long time, you know, until I was like, oh, God, what? Oh, God, what was the last time I got my haircut at at Carter's? I think that was like... I want to say that was like 2001. I think that's the last time I got my hair cut there and that was just for old time's sake because by that time we're talking 2001 I was what 32 going on 33 and I went there just to you know just to see if you know uh, everybody was still there and yes the family was still there cutting hair you know. I think that was, I was like just a Bridgeport East End staple by then. I mean, shout out to Michael Jai White, uh, the actor, uh, Bridgeport born and raised, you know. And, you know, I, it's funny because I just never ran into that kid, that guy. I never ran into that guy growing up. And I lived on the East End for quite a, you know, for a little while in you know, in the, 70s and again in the early 80s you know I always found that interesting And but no he was I remember because he was standing in front of the Mahalia Jackson Center and he was talking about you know growing up at Bridgeport and I'm like how is it possible that he and I never cross paths we're of equal age I think he's like I think he's like 51 and I'm going to be 50 in about a month So it's just weird to me that he and I never cross paths. But anyway, shout out to him. Um, So, yeah, I mean, going, you know, just basically going when you're just on your way to somewhere. And sometimes it's not a place that you want to, you know, that you want to really go to, but you kind of have to. Like going to get your hair cut. Um, Finding a game room or not finding it, or just being able to go to a game room which was awesome. I mean of course I talked about uh, the arcade in Lafayette Plaza but also Carl Graff Records you know which was on the bottom floor close to the uh, State Street entrance to the Lafayette Plaza Mall on the north side you know that was a place that always had video games especially in like the middle 80s I want to say like from 82 until that mall I think closed down and like oh god when did it close out I think it was like 87 or 88 when that mall closed down or maybe even 89 when the mall shut down but yeah that place had games you know and it was just it was just a, a good thing to know that you could spend a couple of dollars you know just playing games while you were on your way to somewhere. I mean, I talked about uh, playing games in the train station on my way to school when I was going to private school in eight, from 82 to 83. Um, and sometimes where, yeah, I skipped school and I went to the Connecticut Post Mall and uh, Milford Rec, but that's for when I talk about those two places in uh, Arcade Rundown, which is coming soon. You know, game rooms were in their own way were just as important as arcades, in my opinion. Um, yeah, if you have any sort of stories along these lines and talk, you know, just something that you know you want to discuss or something you want to ask about, uh, just get a hold of me at arcadeaddictbrian.com. Also, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, and uh, Tumblr. So, yeah. That'll do it for On the Road. I'm um, at another customer stop, so I'm going to call it here. This is Brian saying good gaming. Have fun out there. Au revoir. This has been the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. All music is provided by Kevin McLeod. You can find his music at incompetech.com. If you wish to contact the show, you can drop an email at arcadeaddictbrian, that's all one word, at gmail.com. We also have a voicemail number for the show. It is 734-743-2433. Until next time, this is The Confessions of an Arcade Addict Podcast.